0: There is nothing wrong with your setting. You are about to experience the awe and mystery known as the female mind. You are now entering the fangirl zone.
1: We will continue exploring discovering new worlds, new civilizations. Welcome to the Captain's Chair, a podcast and all the shows in the Star Trek universe on the Fangirl Zone. I am Richard Dave, and joining me on this mission into the unknown is... I'm Chief
2: Engineer Steve, and today we'll be discussing Episode 4 of Season 4 of Star Trek
1: Discovery. Have they said, uh, how many seasons this is going to go for? Have we been, has anyone intimated that this is a five-year mission? Not recently,
2: but yeah, this, at one point in time, they thought that it was going to be five, but I'm not so sure. This may go on for another couple more years at least.
1: That's what they all used to do. Anyway, it was, I think it was Enterprise that cut short. And everyone goes, well, that's it. It's the end of Star Trek on TV. Anyway. What'd you think of this episode? I know we're not rating it, but if we were, I'd give it three out of five bad hair days for (laughs) Grey. Yeah. What is that? It does jive with my theory that he's going to move further away from uh, Adira. He actually shoved her out the door at one point. He did it with a smile. The next time he's going, like, oh, please, stop sobbing. <laughs> My problem with the show, it might have been a little generous giving it a three out of five, bad hair days were great, was all the sob stories. Again, it, to me, these are contrived crises. Now, I know they used a voiceover at the beginning, how stressed out everybody is, and right. it's really. I just have a feeling they realize the same thing as me. It's like, this is becoming so maudlin. I know bad things happen on Star Trek. That's okay. Danger, right. a space is dangerous. I don't remember this much hand-wringing, do you? Not in a long time. Not even
2: (laughs) Voyager got this bad.
1: I know, and they were on the other side of the universe. (laughs) Right. I agree. I think this is getting a bit too much down in the dump. So much so that everyone panicked that we were going to lose a major character on the show. It didn't seem to follow logically that way, too. Well, people are are abandoning ship more ways than one. (laughs) Now, I really don't understand Tilly's story either, or narrative. To me, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. I actually thought something's going on in Mary Weisman's personal life, so I, I Googled it, and it doesn't seem to be. No. Yeah, I was a little surprised that her path
2: changed so suddenly. I knew she wasn't. She made it clear that things just weren't right for her, and she had to use some absolute candor with herself to determine exactly what was going on with herself and to me it's like it was the this became the easy way out and she took it
1: yeah agreed that's why it doesn't work for me right all right well episode four
2: all is possible tilly and adira lead a team of starfleet academy cadets on a training mission that takes a dangerous turn Meanwhile, Burnham is pulled into tense negotiations on Navarre.
1: Yeah, Tilly and Adira <laughs> with a bunch of cadets. What could go wrong? <laughs> you know what else bothers me? I know I'll get a little off track here. That bothers me is she used to be funnier. Right. I don't know why they had to sap that. I mean, she got in a couple of uh, cute ones in this episode, but I don't know why they wanted to mess with her character like that. Anyway, aboard the USS Discovery, it remains in orbit around Navarre a week after Captain Burnham's mission of the Kuat Milat. You know how they went seamlessly from the last episode into this one? I really appreciate it. I I wish more TV shows would do that. Sure. Sometimes it's like, oh, a month later. Like, how do you know it's a month later? How do we know? Exactly. In this episode, that worked for me. Navara is fast-tracking negotiations to rejoin the Federation, but Burnham notes in her log that she is unaware of, of where things stand. Acting on advice from Dr. Culber, she has mandated downtime for the crew in order to ensure their psychological and emotional well-being. But Commander Stamich remains at work, unable to let himself rest until he solves the mystery of the dark matter anomaly, particularly for Booker. That's all good, and I understand that. Where's his B or C or D plot? That bothers me too, Steve. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, knowing how he reacts to things. Right. I think this is going <laughs> to cause a breakdown. Yeah, he won't be able to save somebody, or, you know, a few planets full of people. If that doesn't drive him around the bend, something's wrong this season. Burnham also notes her concern about Booker, noting that while the mind meld he had with Tarina had given him a piece at the time he proved to be fleeting, can he just go to the holodeck and get <laughs> the holodeck Spock and <laughs> give him one? Right. <laughs> she has recommended that he, he sit down with Dr. Culbert, but Booker, I call him Bumming Booker in this episode, Bobby Booker is pulling into himself a natural reaction to grief. Burnham meets with Captain Saru, who tells her that the President Rillock has requested their presence at the negotiating table down on Navarre. According to Rillock, Fleet Admiral Vance has become ill with a Melindian stomach worm, and uh, medical advice was to allow the worm to gestate before extracting it, which would require 24 hours. You know, there was uh, sound good. <laughs> you no, know, I, I gave you a little boomer talk here, Steve. There was... I. I think it was Night Gallery. I don't think it was Twilight Zone. But this g- worm got into this guy's head, so they had to rope him down to the bed, and it. They had to wait till it ate its way through <laughs> from one ear to the other. Oh, yeah, which was sheer torture. I think it was Night Gallery, and the guy yeah, just I suffered too. too. Yeah, he suffered through the whole thing, and as this episode ended, they, they're like, the good news is the worm made it out the other side. The bad news is it had babies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Boomer talk over. Burnham and Saru are to replace the Admiral in diplomatic capacity. While Burnham admits that she would like to be present when the Navarre rejoin the Federation, the analysis of the DMA must take priority. She's still Bucking Authority? Oh, of course she is. Saru clarifies that Rilak was not giving them a choice and that they were to remain silent. And look, official, nothing more. Like, that's going to happen. Yeah, it always happens. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Tilly meets with Dr. Culber, admitting she feels lost. She tells him that the mission with Burnham and the Coat Malat helped, because she stabbed a nun, and that she applied her way of absolute candor to herself. She believed that there was a straight-line path to the captain's chair and been trying to get there as fast as she could, but that she now was looking for a detour, remarking on her efforts to step aside her, her comfort zone, hunting down to Vinnie, eating food that she hated. Those are Rigelian Rutabagas, much to the doctor's amusement. But she considers these to be baby steps and is looking for a real way to challenge herself, like working in astrometrics or studying medicine. Yeah, sure. Become a doctor. I'm surprised Colbert didn't give the old Spock one, uh, one eyebrow up. Like, right, huh, yeah, huh? interesting. <laughs> Colbert suggests clearing her mind before uh, making any choices, but Tilly admits that that was the problem. She couldn't clear her mind, especially now with the threat from the DMA. Culber mentions that he had been contacted by Dr. Kovitch, who? Yeah, since Wow, who is consulting with Starfleet Academy. He had been requested as a member of Discovery's crew to accompany a group of cadets in a team-building exercise, believing they had something special to offer since they had served before the burn. When Tilly questions how she could leave the work with Stamets to lead this exercise, Culber points out that Captain Burnham had mandated downtime for the crew, and this could count as Tilly's. When Tilly agrees, Culber asks for a favor. In their quarters, Ensign Adira Tal wonders why Tilly has ordered them on a mission as they were already a commissioned officer. Gray also believes the Academy is awesome, points out that it would be part of Adira's responsibility as Tal's host to add new experiences for both of them and the host. Yeah. Adira mentions that Jovar had taught at the academy before the burn, so Tal already had that experience, but Grey retorts, there was always something new to learn, and besides, orders were orders. <laughs> Get out of my room. <laughs> yeah, it <that, that laughs> really uh, felt like Grey was <laughs> shoving her out the door. Yeah, when dera asked what he could do besides the gentile exercises, Grey expresses his desire to check out the crew games in the Ford Lounge. He's going to meet somebody new fast. Yeah. And Dira is somewhat concerned, since Grey doesn't know anyone on the crew, but Grey is confident well it's not exactly true but gray is confident that he could just walk in and say hello and then he would know somebody which is true he suggests it would be the same for adira and the cadets adira jokes that they can't even eat soup without scanning it first and admits they haven't done anything new about gray she probably wonders why her soup is always cold what's wrong with this place soup's always cold we'll stop scanning it gray tells them it was their chance to learn playfully ushers him out the door Next time, it won't be so playful. They're going to put her on a skateboard and shove her right down the, the hallway. <laughs> Tilly and Adira arrive at Federation Headquarters. Where they're greeted by Kovitch. So first of all, we had that awesome music, yes. Star Trek music. And then Kovic actually does appear. Like, they're bringing everybody back. Yep. He's another guy. You know, first, I didn't expect we'd see Rilak that much. She's in, has she been in every episode? I think so. Just about, yeah. Now we get Kovic back. I haven't figured out what he's all about, have we? No. <laughs> so, secret safe with him. He directs Adira to across where the team of cadets, Val Sasha, a human, Haral, and Orion, and Taz Gorev, a Tellarite, are waiting and suggesting introducing themselves to them. The cadets look distinctly uneasy, looking suspiciously at one another as they, they look in each other's direction at all. As Zira walks away, Tilly thanks Kobrich for letting her bring Adira along, as Dr. Kobrich believed could use some work in team building. So. It's like a stepladder for everyone helping everybody. Gophers have been Tilly, Tilly's helping Adira. Who's Adira? Does does she have a mouse in her pocket? He's helping out. (laughs) Govich is all too familiar with that issue and has been a problem seen in all the Starfleet cadets. Hence, he was a consultant. While they were the best their worlds had to offer, they had grown up isolated and disconnected and found it hard to work as a team, especially with people they don't know. Yeah, I guess.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, got all these new worlds. An old world's rejoining federation that they've been isolated from each other for centuries now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not like it was back in the 23rd century when everybody could visit everywhere and get to know people
1: and be excited. It's not that they did without space travel, though, and they still had the chain working its magic with all these planets. So there must have been some exposure. Right, some, but a lot. Tilly sees the problem with the threat posed by the DMA. Starfleet is desperate for new personnel, but how could they work at all if they can't work together? Kovic confirms this and adds that this is the exercise could be seen as being without the very future of Starfleet itself. Yeah, I guess so. I just want those moods, Steve. I'm like, giving the old Vulcan eye roll, like, yeah, okay. Sure. Board the shuttle, now at warp, Tilly explains that the exercise was a typical survey mission. You know, I always think if I ever go to the future, Steve, Any ship can be war capable, so I could just get my, like, Ford Mustang out of space and just fly around the uh, galaxy? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, a little heavy metal-ish. Yeah. Their pilot, Lieutenant Callum, would bring them to Garon, a Class M desert moon orbiting Theta Helios, where they can conduct a full planetary survey. While Tilly presents an upbeat demeanor, trying to rally some excitement about new worlds and new life forms, the other, even Adira, maintain their neutral expressions. Upon arrival, they would have six hours to complete their survey, by which point they would rendezvous with the USS Armstrong, which would return them to Federation headquarters. Telling notes, they have been at the academy for a couple of months and must know one another by this point. Sasha replies that they really don't, and that Haral, adding the academics, keeps them busy. Virtually learning stuff at home? Stay at home? <laughs> <laughs> yep. No classrooms. As it was supposed to be a team-building exercise, Tilly decides to start introducing herself, remarking that she had remembered her first training exercise, which involved dropping her utility kit down a methane bit. The others look at it for a moment and back at their consoles. Yeah, I don't think that was the best strategy, see, to no. fill them with confidence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Callum reports that he would be dropping out of warp in one minute, at which point Tilly gives out the assignments. Derek would handle the magnetospheric scan, Haral the geological, Sasha the microbial, and of the atmospheric. Adira quietly expressed to Tilly that they thought they were going along as her aide to keep an eye on the cadets, but Tilly suggests they look at themselves as another cadet, as they had a lot to learn. What do you think there? She was a little like, hey, I'm a Starfleet officer. I, I don't have to have part of this mission. You're right. Was that weird to you? Well, I
2: understood Tilly's thought process there. Yeah. Yes. Even though she is an ensign now, she has very little experience. So this is, would
1: be good for her to get this experience as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, I definitely sympathize or empathize with Tilly's take on this and not a Adair, yeah you're already admits that she can't even eat soup without scanning it first and do something. Yeah. <laughs> Just then, the shuttle violently shakes. Callum reports they had been hit by a rogue gamma-ray burst, which has disabled the engines and helm controls. They have a lot of rogue stuff going on in their, in, their, in the future, yeah, Steve. Absolutely. <laughs> Something out of their all the time. So, maybe a giant green hand <laughs> will appear sometime. Sasha volunteers. Ransom. <laughs> I hope so. Sasha volunteers to help as a pilot, but Tilly orders her back to her station to settle deploys. its emergency shield. As Tilly asks Callum, If he could bring up our auxiliary systems. Callum reports he cannot and the shuttle was going down. Tilly orders them all to brace for impact. She seemed a little panicky then, just then. She was not quite as confident as she was at the beginning. (laughs) Right. Tilly
2: comes to aboard the crash shuttle and asks if the others are all right. She hears Callum weekly call for help and grabs the shuttle's emergency med kit. But by then, it's too late and Callum is dead. Yikes. Tilly attempts to contact the Armstrong, but Adira points out the gamma ray burst would have knocked out the communications. Deactivating the shield covering the viewports, they are all dismayed to see they have not landed on Garon, but on Kotoyos, a Class L ice moon. The air was breathable, but the conditions were hazardous to sentient life. (laughs) Haral <laughs> thinks it was all part of the exercise, that they're in some kind of hollow simulation, but Tilly apologetically
1: tells him it's not. That's right, kid. This yeah. is Shakespeare. We're just killing off people. Yep. The, crash the there.
2: situation is real. <laughs> the emergency distress beacon would have activated on impact, so Tilly sets Gorov to work on life support, Sasha to try and activate the flight systems, and Heral to work with her, ...to bring up the long-range comms. Adira volunteers to bring the sensors back up. Gordon steps into Heral on his way to the console... ...and both are clearly itching to fight... ...before Tilly steps in between them. Trying to work on the team building... ...Tilly tells them they should introduce themselves. Adira starts mentioning growing up on a generational ship... ...before being assigned to Discovery. Sasha grew up on Titan... ...and learned to pilot when she was 12 years old... And that she had never met non humans before the academy. Wow. Okay. Gorev mentions his family was trapped in the Emerald Chain territory after the burn, that they weren't treated very well. This being said, with a glare at Heral. Heral finishes saying that as an Orion, he felt he had to work twice as hard to be taken seriously, and was at the top of his class.
1: Yep, by the way. <laughs> like I threw that in.
2: Tilly notes that now they know each other a little better as she looks worriedly out the viewport. Meanwhile, the representatives of both Navarre and the Federation meet in Navarre's capital. Saru is pleasantly surprised when one of Tarina's aides places a traditional Kelpian tea bowl in front of him. Oh, Burnham, noting hmm? the quiet interaction between Tarina and Saru, notes that he appears to have a fan. <laughs>
1: yeah, we knew what that last year, didn't we? Yes,
2: we did. How did Burnham not completely pick up on it? <laughs> yeah. Just then, Relic rises to speak, noting that there have been several similar summits over the past four months, but now they have reached the end of the long process to return Navar to the Federation. The Federation has looked over the agreement and is satisfied and is ready to welcome Navar back to the Federation. Tarina then rises, stating that she too is glad to be nearing the restoration of their alliance. However, there's one final matter she wishes to settle on, remarking on the threat posed by the DMA. She requests an amendment to be added to the agreement, allowing Navarre an exit clause, immediate and unconditional withdrawal from the Federation should the need arise. Rillick notes that this was unprecedented, but Tarina reminds her that before the burn, Navarre and the other member worlds felt the Federation was unable to see the individual needs of its member worlds, causing an erosion of trust.
1: How are you supposed to trust someone who wants to bail the first time something goes wrong? Exactly. That, that gentleman that was always sitting next to Torina, he was obviously the one behind that faction. Yes, I think so. so Pure trust. Yeah. How did he get that far to the uh, bargaining table? They were about to seal the deal. And then this is intentional sabotage, or as we all know, Torina. The inside voice there, but I'm surprised they brought it to the table. This guy was adamant—that adamant about sabotaging the whole thing.
2: Right? Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense to me either that they could have gotten this close and then all of a sudden you got—I got to
1: have a parachute to get out whenever yeah. you feel like it. And they're finger pointing, and there's an erosion of trust. But as I said, I supposed to trust someone who wants to bail the first sign of trouble. Exactly. That doesn't, You call that Vulcan logic? Was that guy a Romulan?
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Navarre would not consider rejoining the Federation without some measure in place that would protect them should a situation arise again. Rillick points out that times have changed, but Torina remains firm. While the Federation accepts that they cannot force worlds to remain against their will, Navarre being an example, Allowing unconditional withdrawal for Navarre would open the door for other worlds to request similar clauses, resulting in a weaker federation. Bingo. <laughs> yep. Tarina believes it illogical to rejoin an organization that put conditions on their judgment and believes perhaps they have moved too quickly. Burnham then rises and opens her mouth.
1: Because <laughs> that's Notice what she
2: that- That's your
1: superpower.
2: (laughs) Yes, it is. Noting that with the tremendous strides to reach that point, it's illogical to forfeit it all over a single issue. Tarina reminds her that Navarre has endured without the Federation for over a century. Burnham points out there is a difference between enduring and thriving. Rillick proposes a recess, and Tarina agrees. Burnham is suspicious the issues Navarre raised have existed for more than a century. Before the DMA. So she suggested to Saru that he speak to Tarina to find out what was going
1: on and oh, really then not ask to speak to Burnham. I thought that was maybe a strategic move. That's good. But a tactical mistake. Like, hey, can you go work on your girlfriend right. and then betray her with the information you've just learned? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was... I could see why Burnham thought that Saru
2: had the best chance of getting information from Tarina, but At what cost? That's it, Saru at risk. And yeah, she's knows Vulcan as well as anybody in Starfleet. So yeah, and she was of the one. Thought
1: of the, it would have went the other way around. Yeah, that always seems a little uh, counterintuitive to me. too. Especially when uh, Burnham had all those problems in the previous episode. Like you're going to sacrifice. This guy's family. Oh, he just got killed. And this supposedly for greater good. And now she has a problem (laughs) with the, hey, wait a minute. What about the greater good? Like, Wait a minute. I thought you had a problem with that.
2: Right. Back aboard Discovery. Booker meets with Dr. Culber at Burnham's suggestion. Burnham has told Culber that Booker is not sleeping, which Booker attributes to grudge, (laughs) saying she's been especially needy lately.
1: Blame the cat.
2: Cobra then begins to explain the concept of a standing funeral, an uncommon earth custom practiced by his family, in which a deceased family member is embalmed and posed in a way that evoked their life. Have you ever heard of that? No. Me neither. And I kind of know quite a bit, or at least some, about Indian cultures, and I would think that that, you know, I could see that possibly being a A Native American tradition, but no. (laughs) Nope. First one for me, too. His uncle Caesar was a card shark, so his family posed him at the poker table, but Culber and his cousin snapped off Caesar's thumb, trying to get the cards into his hand, used his medical expertise to reattach it, and then snapped off the index finger, which caused them all to laugh throughout the funeral. (laughs) Jesus. He notes that in conventional therapy, he was not supposed to share such personal details, but his crewmates, they know a great deal about one another anyway. Booker is initially dismissive, noting how grief was complicated and how he had to let himself experience it when it came. Culber tells him that he has been devastated when his uncle died and had gone to the funeral angry, believing nothing would make him feel
1: better. You know what, Steve? I already pictured him as a much younger man, because your uncle's usually, you know, your father's brother, so he's going to be older than you and not always necessary. Right. But uh, I wonder what kind of medical expertise he had as a kid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It might have been shortly after he got out of the academy and had his degree. Sure didn't sound like it, did it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. His medical expertise didn't give him any uh, foresight into snapping his uncle's fingers off.
2: Culber suggests using the remaining time for a different approach. Booker agrees, so long as he could keep his fingers, to which the was- doctor jokingly shrugs, suggesting maybe.
1: That was a good one.
2: Rue meets with Tarina, thanking her for the traditional tea. He is dismayed at how things have turned out and offers his assistance however he can. Both express their desire to see Navarre and the Federation rejoined, but Tarina is bound first and foremost by her obligations to her people, and can do nothing more if the Federation is unwilling to compromise, something Saru understands. Tarina leaves to spend the remainder of the recess in solitary meditation. At the same time, Burnham speaks to Rillick, who notes that she and Tarina represent not only themselves, but a host of other interests. Burnham insists that there must be a way to compromise, but Rillick is adamant that compromise would be a sign of weakness and that her
1: hands were tied. This is all part of a larger calculation, too, that we don't get appraised of until later on. Right. It strikes me as a big gamble. Yep.
2: Between both of the leaders. Yeah. And I'm sure Vance isn't even (laughs) ill either. Right,
1: Right. yeah.
2: Why pick? Well, I guess... Yeah. Well, had to be the only answer because she's was raised on Vulcan and is human. And she's yeah. in Federation, so. Yeah,
1: I still, if I was a uh, Navarian, I wouldn't trust her. So right. what, you were, yeah, she, she kind of works. That was a, a while ago when she was raised on Vulcan. She, she's in the Federation now, has been gunning for that captain's chair for the last <laughs> season and a half. Well, I don't know why that makes sense all of a sudden. How could they know? How could they know Burnham and, and uh, Saru would say all the right things? Yeah. <laughs> Despite Relic's inside knowledge that we're going to find out soon, she sure did take a big chance that these guys would work it out for them. Absolutely.
2: With no other options, it seems the Federation was done on Navarre. Really, it rejoins her aides and transports away. Burnham is then rejoined by Saru and expresses her belief that Rillick wants them to find a solution. How convenient. Mm. Saru confirms he had a similar feeling from Tarina. Burnham <sighs> is convinced that it was political theater and that Vance's illness was a ruse. But Saru wonders, why them?
1: I like the rest of us.
2: Burnham believes that is what they have to find out on Koidois Gaurav.com has brought life support back up to 70%, but Sasha reports the flight controls are fried and Heral has unable to find anyone on comms. Gorov <laughs> notes that Theta Helios has 46 moons, wondering how a ship would be able to find a 12-meter shuttle in that large of a space.
1: Well, here's a clue for you, buddy. It is the, uh, what is it, the 32nd or 33rd century? Yeah, 33rd century. <laughs> yeah, it's the 33rd century. I don't think it's be too much of a problem. Maybe in the 23rd century, they'll have a a programmable matter. They have programmable matter. I think they can solve just about a search for a a space shuttle, Mm -hmm. a meter. (laughs) What does he know? He's just a cadet. cadet. (laughs) Adira
2: points out that panicking would not help, noting that their past lives showed it could be worse, earning sarcastic thanks from Gora. (laughs) Tilly asks about sensors and Adira reports they are online and detecting thousands of life forms right outside the shuttle. Uh Uh-oh, the shuttle is shaken up, leaving them to wonder what was outside. Just then they see a creature pound against the viewport.
1: Whatever it is, Adira (laughs) thumbs, it's not good. (laughs) Well, we get to see two of these things, yeah. right? Despite the fact that there are thousands of them out there. So I, I, I can just picture them. Standing in line, waiting to smack the ship or hunt them down. That's a long, that's a long line that goes down yeah. to the horizon. <laughs> so Dara brings up a tricorder and identifies a life form in a Tuscadian pyrosome, a colony species made up of thousands of interconnected zooid life forms, mostly preying on bioluminescent crustaceans, tracking them via electromagnetic signature. It's hard to find a lot of bioluminescent crustaceans on a frozen planet, I would yes, imagine. I would no, think- no wonder they're hungry. Until he sees that it was the same frequency he used as Starfleet equipment. That's a bad coincidence. Gorub takes up his phaser until he stops and telling them to all shut down their equipment. If the Pyrosome can't detect EM signatures, they can't see them. Was he going to fire through the window? Yeah, that made no sense. What the hell? Hey, somebody open that window for a second. I'm going to shoot. <laughs> as the shot goes dark, the attack stops. It had gone away, but it would be back. They could not use their comms in the shuttle, and they would freeze before anyone found them. Best thing, Tilly suggests, is to get out of that valley up to a nearby ridge and use their personal communicators to reach the Armstrong. The vantage point would also allow them to see the jellyfish from hell before it attacked. That kind of remind me of that monster was chasing Kirk on that frozen moon he was on when he first met Spock. Right. He was in the cave. A lot of hungry. It probably he probably had a lack of crustaceans on that planet yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> Corto protested the idea, as does Adira, who believes the cadets are not ready. Well, it's better than dying. They would go alone as they work better by themselves anyway. Harrell speaks up, saying, "Yes, yeah, survival training." Sasha considers it. I won't be. I had a wise crack, I'm not going to say it. Sasha both to be crazy, thinking they should stay with the shuttle. Gora bluntly tells them they can risk their lives all they want. Wow. Till he firmly takes charge, finally telling them whatever they did, they would all do it together on Discovery. Booker expresses frustration at what he deems a sad attempt to replicate the. Oh, I, I practiced this and I had it so good. The Quetalum Kwai. Close. Yep. Kwajan healing ritual. The problem is, those invoking the ritual were healed by Kwajan itself, using sands from the Makshamasha River, asking the Tuli Forest for their blessings in the great storms of Namili Kwai. What he was Mm -hmm. using was a program of matter to look like sand accuses Culber of using cheap trick from his holopet to try and and substitute his home world. Yeah, I thought he was going to lose it on Culber. Yeah, it was close uh Culber concedes that it would never be the same as the real thing knowing that quajon had been one of the most beautiful worlds in the known galaxy and his loss was profound <laughs> keep it up <laughs> he really, he's gonna punch you next you would never know the relief of the Quai again booker is torn between anguish and humorless laughter as he asks how long he's supposed to endure the pain a long ass time colbert admits you know they're gonna take away his counselor ship's right. counselor <laughs> On the bar, Saru approaches Tarina in private. Tarina asks if Saru is there as a friend or a representative of the Federation. It's hard to imagine her feelings would be hurt if he isn't there as a friend, considering she's the inside source and knows what's going on, right? Right, yeah. The only one, the only ones in the dark are the ones that have to solve this problem. Saru assures her he's there of his own volition while Burnham seeks an audience with Rillac, believing they could change her mind. Well, he just gave up while he was there, too. Right. <laughs> Tarina has been meditating on the question Is trust in another's commitment To a shared goal enough Despite the scars of history Saru notes that trust is a journey You know Saru has came across As the smartest person yeah. on, on this entire episode Amongst the entire cast of players yep. The DMA has awakened Old and new fears alike With some like the Balkan purists Gravitating towards isolationism To continue their support of Navarre's coalition Tarina has had to present a logical framework to hold the Federation accountable and that the exit clause provided it. Wow, that doesn't strike me as logical at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised she just didn't like spit on the floor after having saying that. It, that, that was just like, is this something I mean, the guy that you sit next to, the purist, would say, hey, do this, this will sabotage everything. All right, I'll say it. Yeah, she has to know that I'll throw a monkey wrench into the works. Oh, absolutely. Saru thanks her for her trust and offers her to leave her to her thoughts, but asks in the future if you could have some instruction in Vulcan meditative techniques. This is just me. I always picture these guys sneaking off <laughs> into a room together. <laughs> kind of like uh, on the Avengers one, like Jack and uh, Eleanor appear out of nowhere. Oh, you guys upstairs? What were you doing? <laughs> uh, so when Tarina does ask that, why, Saru explains he. And while she weighed political questions, he asked questions about place and purpose. And Mitzi finds it more challenging, given the uncertainty. And right then, I, I was about to crack, like, please don't be a drama queen like everyone else. But he didn't. Serena instructs him on the Thresh Alkashek, or Shared Mind, talk to children. I bet that made him feel good. Yeah. <laughs> Before discovery, Burnham orders Lieutenant Christopher to connect her to the president. Reluct tells her they're about to break orbit, so Burnham decides to be direct. Were they about to break orbit, Steve? No. Steve? no. Saru is meeting with Tarina to convince her to return to negotiation, and when she does, the Federation needs a compromise. Burnham knows that both Rillick and Tarina have taken positions in order to retain their political support and cannot budge from them. But if a third party offered a compromise, they would listen. (laughs) That's not bad. Intrigued, Rillick asked to hear Burnham's proposal. Boy, Rillick, it took a lot of risk there. You better think she came up with something. Yeah. Rude. (laughs) I'm really going to have to leave Orbit. On uh, Kyoto's, the cadets head to the high ridge with Tilly instructing them to keep an eye out for the pyrosome. Just then, <laughs> that would be funny if Kirk just runs by just then. Yeah. The thing <laughs> hey, what are you doing here? Just then, the sky crackles with lightning, which Adira, through the memories of Kashital, recognized as spider lightning, which could travel for kilometers. I thought it only struck spiders and that they were all safe. Right, yeah. <laughs> Behind and below them, the pyrosome emerges and splits into two before burrowing back down. That was cool. I think one of the cadets was like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't see them without their equipment active until he pushed them forward to the ridge. Gorov is concerned about the lightning. Come on, dude. And Adair tries to tell them to stay ahead of the storm, but Gorov tells them to stop acting like they know everything. Because as far as he was concerned, they knew as little about the moon as the rest mm-hmm. of them. Mr. Positive. I just awarded him the Mr. Positive Award. Yeah, absolutely. Harrell suggests finding a cave to get out of the yellows, which Sasha sarcastically calls a genius idea that would allow the Pyrosons to eat them. Yeah, but would it? Yeah. It's kind of like the sandworms on Dune. You know, you'd know, go to the rock or whatever. It's out of sand. And you can't follow you. Yeah. Adira, fed up with the fighting, offers to go off alone. Wow. This turned out to be a great mission. Tilly asserts the command again, saying, Usually an upbeat person, but right now, her only concern was to getting them out of life. It's too bad that uh, she couldn't just phaser them right. and then teleport them to the top of the ridge. I'm sick of this. Yep. I mean, it would only get them up there in a, a few seconds anyway. Sure. That transport that uh, Relic used with her party there, you see how they put hands on each other's shoulder? Yeah. Like it was a shared transport. I don't know why you had to do that yeah. unless they were using Everybody knows in that century you can have personal transport, Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Were they afraid to use it on the planet to transport themselves to the ridge? What difference would it make is yeah, the yeah, sand, you're right. if the sandworms that woke up the, the fake sandworms, who cares? You're already at the top of the ridge. Just then, a lightning strike right next to them causes the ice to melt and flash breeze around Adira's dearest leg, trapping them in place. I thought she stepped in like, you no know, uh, quicksand. Right, yeah. <laughs> stepped in quick ice or something.
2: Yeah, that kind of caught me off guard as well. Yeah. Tilly has Heral toss her the emergency kit, which contained a bandage roll. Tilly tosses one end to Adira, then instructs the others to take the other end, while Sasha grabs Adira once they are free of the ice. Working together, they manage to break Adira loose and bring them to safety. Tilly encourages them to continue up to the ridge and raise the Armstrong. I just
1: figured out that's how Maya lost her leg. Yeah. She's on a... Frozen planet. And they all pulled her out and left one of their legs there. I would think that's kind of a risk when they're freezing her legs like that. Like, yeah, yeah you're careful. But Especially Herall. after the story to Cobra says he's snapping fingers. I thought, yes. well, they could break her legs off.
2: But Haral is worried the pyrosome will come after them if they sense the EM signal. Till he tries to encourage them to continue to work together like they did to save Adira. Gorov, however, believes it would be easier if they didn't have to rely on an Orion accusing her of looking out only for himself. He reveals that when he was 10 years old, he and his family had their replicators commandeered by an emerald chain raiding party simply because they could. He watched his grandmother starve to death and had to bury her himself because his parents were too weak having given what food they had to him so that he could live. I guess the uh, grandma was a little too stringy to eat. eat or... uh, apparently. <laughs> Tilly understands gorvid's grievances, but ask if he knew Haral's own history with the chain. And of course, Haral doesn't tell him about it. Oh no. It. It's Why Adira. Would Why would he? <laughs> Adira reveals that Haral was the son of Basharat Haral, an activist who had pushed for the slave emancipation clause in the proposed armistice that was eventually brought to the Federation the year before. He had died a political prisoner before the armistice was even considered. Haral adds that his father had told him being in Orion meant that they had even greater responsibility to speak out against the chain's methods. Both Gorov and Sasha look at him with more respect now, and Sasha apologizes for putting down the idea of finding shelter. Tilly, pleased to see the cadets are bonding at last, again emphasizes heading to the ridge, and they are much more enthusiastic as they move out. On Navarre, both sides reconvene, with Saru and Burnham standing between both delegations. Burnham notes that the fact they were both there meant they were ready to look forward. Tarina replies that they had never been in dispute, yet Burnham counters that she was allowing past mistakes to define the future.
1: Yeah, not very logical, Tarina. What are you trying to say, then? (laughs) <laughs> to
2: Tarina, Logic dedicated that the lessons learned should inform such choices, but Burnham points out that choices were not always logical. Emotions were always
1: involved. Wouldn't have been logical to go to that meeting if you knew something was going to happen. to coming up. root
2: references his own history,
1: particularly his personal challenges
2: in trusting the Ba'al after the culling of his family and ancestors but that Kaminar was much stronger now that the Ba'ul and Kelpians had united.
1: Till there's a food shortage.
2: Burnim adds the same could be said of Navarre, how the millennia of mistrust between the Vulcans and the Romulans had led them to forget that they had been one people, and yet they have reunited as well. She also points out Relic's combined human Bajoran-Kardashian ancestry, and how Kardashian had waged war both against Bajor and the Earth in the past, yet now all three were at peace because they chose to grow to change. Tarina commends Burnham for her inspiring words, but points out words were not sufficient, and remarks that both Burnham and Saru had a proposed compromise. Burnham explains that in Starfleet, disputes between high-ranking officers are settled by a committee whose sole purpose is to provide objectivity and help both sides find a resolution. She proposes a similar body, independent of Federation leadership, to conduct regular reviews with all member worlds. Not just Navarre, everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm going, well, yo, how are you going to find time to uh, captain <laughs> a ship
1: there, Bert? Yeah, I, I, I'll keep it busy. Really She's not stressing up over the stupid
2: DMA. Relic protests that Navarre has already refused such oversight without one of their own members, while Trina asks if that was any more egregious than allowing Starfleet, more or less a military body, to have a voice in a civilian quorum. Burnham volunteers herself to serve on the proposed committee as she is a citizen of both Navarre and the Federation and could act as a bridge between the two until such a time as the bridge was no longer needed. After an initial hesitation, both agree. Tarina dubbing it an elegant solution. Back on Coidos, the team reaches the top of the ridge. Yay! Yay! Tilly notes the storm will interfere with their personal transporters
1: Oh, now they have a personal
2: transporter. Yeah, which meant they would need 60 seconds before the Armstrong could get a lock on them. Adira points out that 60 seconds would be long enough for the pyrosome to reach them, and volunteers (laughs) to turn on their company, (laughs) distracting the creature. (laughs) Raul believes this is a terrible idea, and Gorev agrees. Those two buddies. All of a sudden, Adira points out the cadets had saved their life, and now they would save the others. Tilly knows Adira is right, but volunteers herself instead, as commander of the mission. Once Tilly is clear, Adira is to call for the Armstrong and not stop. She assures them all of her confidence in them
1: and prepares herself. You know what the problem with that is, Steve? (laughs) They're attracted to um, high frequency. Why don't you just turn on the communicator and toss it someplace? Right. (laughs) So While you're safe? And then those things can uh, run and gobble it all they want. Meanwhile, she's safe. Her idea is to turn something on and then run across this frozen planet. No, 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 no. You know, Just turn it on and toss it someplace. Slide it across the ice, let it chase it. This is why I, I didn't go to the academy. They're not, they're not teaching people, right, Steve? Tilly steps back down into the valley before looking back up the ridge and asking if the others were ready. They all confirm "Are yes, we're going to watch you die from a here." She reminds that at that moment they get a signal calling for the Armstrong. Then they draw, she draws her phaser and activates her comms. In a few seconds, the pyrosome bursts out of the ice behind her. Rawr. As the deer begins signaling, they see the pyrosome was too close to Tilly because she's actually running with that thing on instead of tossing it someplace. And instructs the others to draw their phasers and try to draw its attention by shooting it. To their dismay, the other half of the pyrosome bursts out and begins heading right up towards them, but Adira orders the others to maintain their fire. As the second begins climbing the ridge, Adira is relieved to hear Captain Imahara on the Armstrong respond and shouts down to Tilly that they had made contact. I was just thinking, well, why don't you just tell her that through your communication device since everybody right. turned? <laughs> Adira and the cadets are transported out first as the first pyrosome approaches Tilly. Just as it reaches her, she too is transported to safety. Oh, that was close. What if they transported the pyrosome
0: yeah. <laughs> up to the ship?
1: <laughs> he would have eaten the I wanted her to throw it thing, but he would eat it and they transferred it up the monster instead. Right. <laughs> uh, good plan, Dave. Ramton returns down to the Federation headquarters where Tilly watches proudly while Adira and the cadets happily talk to one another. Yeah, all's forgiven. Kovitch approaches, having read the Armstrongs' report. He knows the loss of Lieutenant Callum was a tragedy and expresses surprise any of them survived. I can only imagine that Lieutenant Callum was wearing his red underoos. Yeah, and that's what cost him. He, he wasn't wearing a red shirt, but I'm sure the red un- security underoos was what cost him his life. yeah Tilly attributes that to the kids pulling together when it mattered and believed they would. Be an excellent addition to any starship crew. Something Kovitch agrees. They would be able to thank her for when they got the opportunity. Yes, he remembers when Discovery first arrived and how no one had trusted them. It hadn't been just the fact they had arrived in a 930-year-old starship and never heard of the burn, but also the way they carried themselves, how they grew up in a world where they believed anything was possible. So in the future, everyone's huge doubters were doomed. Ah, admits the idea had stung at first. Wow. But believes that was the kind of attitude the new generation of cadets needed as the Federation rebuilds and offers Tilly a teaching position at Starfleet Academy, though he notes that the recent experience would mean that the idea was unlikely to fall on willing heirs. <laughs> mm-hmm. not, not so fast, buddy. As Kovac leaves, Adira walks up to Tilly and meets they were glad that they came along much to their surprise. They had befriended the cadet, although they wish they knew how to make friends without nearly getting eaten by a blob. That's a good point. Hungry blob with no crustaceans to chew on. Tilly considers Adira one of the most brilliant people she's ever met, and that's why they always started with "I can't" when making new connections. Brilliant, huh? Is she brilliant? No. Yeah. Yeah, Adira can see that it often. She's so smart she keeps to her t- herself. Adira yeah, can see it often feels impossible to Tilly. Looking at Adira and all they have been through and all they have accomplished was a reminder that anything is possible. On Navarre Rilakhan's Tarina. A folded Federation flag, I thought someone died, it welcomes Navarre back into the fold. They should have had a uh, a virtual flag just go up a virtual pole, a right. snap in the vir- virtual wind. She notes that billions of future have been changed because of what happened today. And, and thanks, Burnham and Saru, for their contribution to this successful negotiation. Yeah, billions of lives were changed already. They're going to save Navarre at the cost of some other solar system or planet. All that work that Relic put in it is, well, I'm not going to cost that now. I'm going to save these people. Burnham thanks Tarina for taking the first step with the Federation and admits she has a matter on her mind. Tarina recognized that Burnham is wondering about the fate of the Javini after her capture on the Obronian moonship. She tells Burnham that Javini would be taken to Pajar, a monastic world in the Pella system, to devote herself to deep rehabilitative meditation under the guidance of Burnham's mother, Gabrielle, and that they would leave tonight. Well, I said, what? I was, I was like, wait, we're not going to see Gabrielle again? Right, yeah. That sucks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's the matter with this writer's room? Javini had been the one to help Gabrielle put her broken life back together and now their roles reversed. In time, Tarina as Javini would make amends to the family of Patrick Fickett, the Starfleet officer she had killed. They're gonna make another body. Right. right? <laughs> and they're gonna <laughs> they preserved his consciousness in the computer and they're gonna present him as a Christmas present. Right. <laughs> right. Tarina then invites Saru to join her for tea, which he accepts. And of course he did. As they leave, look was like, oh my. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be jealous. We, you got a boyfriend. As they leave, Rillick comments to Burnham that, despite her aversion to politics, she showed an aptitude for it. No, she just says a big mouth. <laughs> Burnham asked if Admiral Vance had made a recovery from his illness, air quotes, and Rillick agrees he did look better than the last time she saw him. She admits she had received intelligence that morning about the exit clause and had to protect her source, Tarina herself. Yeah, that's an awful lot of faith in that somebody else is going to figure it out for them. And then the solution is is to have someone who's an insider, meaning Burnham, be the uh, mediating force, which is right. the guy. I don't know a guy would buy it. Why would he buy that? Okay. Burnham tells her she would have help if he had been asked her. If She just asked her, but the president admits she was uncertain Burnham was right for the job. What the hell? Seemed pretty confident she was the one for the job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham concedes that transparency is always, not always possible in a relaxed position, but that it was if she needed to serve both the president and the federation and make it clear that she would appreciate if Burnham were more forthcoming in the future. What a smart mouth she is. <laughs> Burnham agrees, don't agree, and tells Burnham she would see her back at headquarters in a few days, put her in the torture chamber. A discovery, Booker continues work with Culber. Booker sees he has a lot to work out and asks what he does with what he's crafted. Culber replies that once the Mandela is finished, it can just be wiped away. Booker asks, (laughs) yeah, that's useful. Booker asks if Culber does this himself. He has things that need to be wiped away, air quotes. Culber replies he does, but Booker asks if he wants to talk about it. And someday, Culber replies, his boyfriend's never around. He's too busy working at DMAs. That's what's bothering him. Meanwhile, Tilly sits alone in her quarters when Burnham stops in to check on her having heard what happened on the mission. Tilly jokingly says, typical day. But Burnham sees something is on her mind. he realizes they have not sat together like that since Burnham becomes Discovery's captain and thinks back to when they first became roommates. Do we know the point where she didn't get? Did She did say uh, Burnham did say she was only a temporary first officer, right? Was that last year when they said temporary until Saru comes back? Or was that not a sure thing? Because sometimes I wonder if that's, part of her, if that's part of Tilly's motivation. I didn't get to be uh, right. I didn't, yeah. number one. But they, they never give voice to that. No, they didn't. Anyway, she admits that she had been scared to bunk with a famous mutineer and constantly lay awake at night worrying that Bernard would stick a knife in her back. Graham <laughs> jokes that she had considered it, given how Tilly snored when she slept and that she had to computer block out the sound frequencies so she could sleep. But after a few days, she kind of started to like it. She recognizes that Tilly wants to go back to the academy, and Tilly admits she does. She calls her promotion to lieutenant the worst day of my life. Huh? She wondered how her mother would, could be a diplomat, giving that she was such a hard-ass at home without compromise and had planned everything out, even Tilly's own life, which changed when Tilly joined Starfleet instead of the Federation Diplomatic Corps. Not sure that makes sense to me. Okay, Tilly. It admits that she had thought she was just doing it for herself, but when she got promoted, she suddenly realized her mother was 900 years in the past would never see her wear her rank pips. She wondered if Starfleet career was really what she wanted, or if she just wanted to be seen—an experience she considering humbling, but also a good perspective for her teacher. I find that a little hard to swallow. She seemed pretty career-oriented, and now we're seeing she's just doing it for her mother. That's nine hundred years in the past. Right? Hmm. Do you buy that? I mean, that doesn't—that doesn't jive with the old Tilly. Well, she's, I don't think we really got any
2: of Tilly's true backstory about her mom. We knew that there were issues to find out that, yeah, her mother was such a hard ass and was driving her to be a diplomat, I'm sure. Of course, Tilly would want to rebel against that and say, no, I'm going into Starfleet. We see that blind focus on trying to get to the captain's chair from Tilly in the beginning. So she did that to spite her mom then. Yes, trip, it really wasn't mom. what she was wanting to do. It was, I'm going to do whatever mom doesn't want me to do. But in the end,
1: mom was right then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, she's not really going into diplomacy. She's going into teaching.
1: Yeah, still, it's, that's what's available. And it's not a career track at a captaincy. No, it's not. <laughs> As Tilly bids farewell to the crew, Adair is surprised to see Tilly's snow globe with the Enterprise nx one suspended in it with it sitting in their quarters with the words, all is possible, written on the base. They look out the window of their quarters at Tilly's shuttle, seeing here looking back before the shuttle jumps to warp. Poof! So what do you think? Three out of five for this episode? More or less. Three out of five bad hair days? Yeah, <laughs> I would probably go two and a half. Yeah, I'd wrestle with that, too. I had a lot of problems in this episode. Yeah. As he could tell. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Two and a half what, Steve? Two and a half hand-wringing Adiris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two and a half. Did you just push me out the door? <laughs> All right. How about some Easter Two eggs? Two and a half kelpian Teas. Ooh, yeah. I bet you got a five-star uh, kelpian Tea Fest that we didn't get <laughs> off camera. So, Easter eggs, what do you think? Yeah, let's get through them. All right. <laughs> let's get through them. I can't warp through these. Most of the plot of this episode revolves around the idea of the Navarre, the planet formerly known as Vulcan, rejoining the Federation. Check. This represents the events of Season 3, specifically the episode Unification 3, in which we learn that the Romans and Vulcans now live on the same planet in relative peace. Yeah, like the sharks and jets. Historically, the planet Navarre Vulcan was a founding member of the Federation along with Earth, Andor, and Teller Prime. The brand new lounge bar on the U.S. Discovery, which had made its debut in the previous episode, doesn't seem to have a consistent staff. Yeah. I need that guy from uh, Lower Decks. Yeah. <laughs> However, in this episode, in the background, we do see a Ferengi seemingly tending bar. Oh, can't wait. Quark's too. Yeah. And this clearly references Quark's bar in Deep Space Nine, where Quark and his brother, Rom, both Ferengi, were tending bar. This feels like a deliberate follow-up to the previous episode, which had a shout-out to Quark's bar patron, Morn. Although Disco Crew has fully switched over to the 3189 Starfleet uniform, played with a rounded comm badge, Burnham's pajamas are still rocking the old-school Starfleet Delta. And David Cohnenberg's enigmatic Starfleet character, Kovic, returns in this episode, this time with the title of Doctor. Did we not know that before? No! <laughs> oh, he just made it up. We don't know what Kovic is a doctor of because he tells Tilly he's consulting with Starfleet Academy. It's still unclear as to what his regular job is in Starfleet. Well, if they're going to bring it back, they better tell us eventually. Gray also mentions that Starfleet Academy it is awesome. This might be a, an offhand remark from him, but both Gray and Adara presumably have all in memories of their previous hosts, a Latal symbiote. When we saw the previous host of Tal in the Season 3 episode, Forget-Me-Not, it was established that at least three of them were Starfleet officers, including Admiral Senatal. Because of Kovic's age, it would seem reasonable that he knew Senatal and Starfleet. But because they are, they are a human host of Tal, Adira doesn't access those memories from the symbiont as consistently. That's helpful. Meaning Adir's memories of previous hosts of tell having gone to Starfleet might be fuzzier than Gray's. Grey has to work on his Satyantara exercise to keep his mind-body connection strong. Well, if your body's made of plastic, isn't that going to be difficult? Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's a little weird. It's not really plastic. Come on. It's not really flesh either. Oh, no. It is the 32nd century, so what am I complaining about? <laughs> As with the last episode, Shiantara is a reference to the Deep Space Nine episode Facets, in which refers to various hosts of the Trill inhabiting new bodies. Anyway, all the Starfleet cadets wear red uniforms. Not not drab gray. Hooray. It's a reference not only to the 2009 reboot canon in which all the cadets wore red, but also the Next Generation era, which established all cadets in the 2360s wore black jumpsuits with red shoulders. And now when you go on a combat mission like last week's episode, you wear a black jumpsuit. <laughs> Even in the DS9 era, red was the go-to color for those shoulder pads, too. After the planned training site, Tilly Shuttlecraft of cadets is supposed to rendezvous with the USS Armstrong. General George Armstrong Custer, is that, are you supposed to? That's what they <laughs> named after Custer? This ship is almost certainly named after the famous astronaut Neil Armstrong, the first human being on the moon. Trek canon loves naming things after Armstrong. Riker mentions Lake Armstrong in his first contact. And three different Nacelle USS Armstrong was part of the Federation fleet sent to defend Vulcan in a 2009 Star Trek reboot. You ever seen the movie First Man, Steve? No. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, it came out uh, within the last five years or so. It's, yeah. it's about You're, you're going to be shocked to hear this, but it's about Neil Armstrong. <laughs> But with the current uh, Discovery Timeline, the USS Armstrong is actually a 32nd century version of the Constitution class named for the original Constitution class of the original series. Yes. According to the book Starship Fleets 2294 and to the future, the Armstrong has a crew of at least 2,000, and was designed as a kind of tribute to the Constitution-class ships from the 23rd century. Similarly, the USS Voyager J is a 32nd-century version of the Intrepid-class, meaning that after 800 years, Starfleet started recycling the class names of the various starships. Why not? We do it here, in our century. Adair and Harrell both mentioned that a rogue gamma ray burst knocked out at the, the shuttle and the communications. The pseudoscientific version of a gamma radiation has been mentioned in Star Trek canon, Several times, including, but not limited to, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, the Next Generation episode, Silicon Avatar, the DS9 episode, Meridian, and the Voyager episode, Child's Play. And still, they've learned nothing about warnings for these things. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Based on a sampling of those references, gamma radiation or a gamma ray radi- birth has been linked to recrystallizing the lithium crystals, like on the Voyage home. Remnants of the crystal entity, like in the Next Generation time shifts with planets, I'm seen, as seen in DS9 and Borg weapons, as seen in Voyager. But they just make, should make a character. Yes, I would love to see a crystalline entity walking around the uh, the hallways in his in his red uniform. <laughs> <laughs> glowing and sparkling, and people walking by and like what the hell was that <laughs> yeah. in fairness it might not be a great idea to draw too many conclusions from this very innocuous line however tilly has experience with recrystallizing dilithium in the short treks episode runaway discovery loves time shifts and people have been wondering about the return of the borg and discovery since season two se- seem to suggest a connection between the control and the borg well, they're out there. Yep. Well, that said, the DS9 episode of The Sons of Moog was established that the Klingon mines emitted gamma, gamma radiation. And so far in 3189, they have no clue what the Klingons are up to in the post-burn future. Did Tilly and the, the kids hit a, a Klingon mine? Hmm. What do you think? That might be a possibility. They still had, uh, they could have cloaked it too, right? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. The notion of a planet or a moon that is slightly below the coveted M-class planet is not new to this, to this episode. In fact, Discovery crashed on an L-class planet in Season 3, the episode Far From Home. Last year, the first L-class planet in Trek 10 was in the TNG episode The Chase, a planet called Indrieve 8. Fascinating. Cadet Sasha mentioned she grew up in a colony on Titan. I thought that was interesting. (laughs) In Discovery Season 3 episode, People of Earth learned that Titan had been a decades-long feud with Earth, uh, one which is diffused by the USS Discovery. Man, it's a good thing they're everywhere. Out the window of the conference room on Navarre, we see several rock formations that look like the Vasquez rocks. These real rock formations... Yep. Are... Near omnipresent Easter egg in all of the Star Trek North of Los Angeles, the area student in for several alien planets in the original series, The Next Generation, and yes, was the planet Vulcan, also known as Navarre, in the 2009 reboot. More recently, the Vasquez Rocks made a big appearance in Star Trek Picard Season 1, appearing for the first time as the actual Vasquez Rock. They <laughs> finally get some credit. If they get a speaking line, they get money from the uh, <laughs> the actors' guild. In this case, in which disco, clearly they are CGI. Aww. The entire setup of uh, Tilly's predicament and various aspects of the Silvercraft Crash are intentional homages to the 1967 of the original series, The Galileo 7. director of the episode was John Ottman, who has confirmed that in speaking to the writers of the episode, Alan McElroy and Eric J. Roberts, this episode was intended to directly reference various aspects of The Galileo 7, so that means there are quite a few small nods to the episode. It's a race between the Marvel writers and these guys' writers to yes. see how much Easter <laughs> <No. laughs> when, when Adira goes to repair parts of the shuttle, they move a, a grate on the floor. This is exactly like Scotty working on the Galileo shuttle. I thought she was going to burn her hand. The thing would go yes. up. I thought she'd sure. go, ow. <laughs> yeah. In the Galileo 7, the shuttle is lost in a quasar like area of space called Orasky 312. In All Is Possible, the Cadet. Shuttle crash lands on a moon of a larger planet, but we're told there are over 30 moons. Jeez. That must be a that hell of a surfing weather there. The point is, in each case, it would be impossible to find a shuttle in a port for a short period of time. In both episodes, the trap crew of the shuttle hears roars smell, sight on an alien planet. In All is Possible, this turns out to be some actual snow monsters, but in the Galilee 7, it turns out it's giants with spears. Yeah. Which is actually cool. <laughs> In both episodes, one crew member dies and everyone is told to, to move on quickly with their survival tasks. So they can't even write an original episode now. They have to rip off. <laughs> Finally, in the, in the Galileo 7, Spock's ability to command the shuttle was put into question by several other people, which suggests a degree of prejudice against Spock since because he's half Vulcan. Man, that guy couldn't catch a break, not even no. as a kid. In all is possible, Haral and Gorov distrust each other because, as an Orion and a Tellurite, who had bad blood from the days of the Admiral Chain that ruled over several planets, which also represents the am- events of Season 3. To be fair, the Galileo 7 isn't the only Star Trek episode which focuses on a shuttle crash into our crew members to be trapped in a shuttle. In a notable episode including the final mission The Next Generation when Wesley and Picard crash on a planet and Shuttlepod 1 in Enterprise in which they trip and reach, shiver in a stranded shuttle pod uh, hoping someone will find them. Towards the end of the episode, in Tilly's course, we see a photo of her and Michael from the early day and discovery. Well, I just slipped ahead to that Easter. But remember in uh, Star Trek Voyager when the captain, what's her name? What is it? In her oh. first off, yeah, oh, geez, someone's going to shoot me. <laughs> Got trapped on an island all by this. An island. A planet all by the yeah. yeah. A planet. And I thought, well, you know, uh, they have a pretty close relationship. You never know. They might have some uh, Kelpian tea, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I came up with this plot twist at the end of, you know, they, they got rescued. But at the end of the season, I wanted Janeway to announce that she was pregnant. Right. Oh, man, that would have been awesome. When did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't do that. End of the episode in Tilly's quarters. We see a photo of her and Michael from earlier in the, the uh, discovery timeline. Specifically, this is a shot that came from season two because Tilly is rocking a Starfleet badge that is not her cadet badge from season one. This suggests this photo had been taken somewhere between season one and season two, perhaps around the events of the Tilly centric short tricks episode Runaway. Basically, there's actually a very tight time period in which this photo could have been taken. Yeah, I'll have a little logic doesn't bother them. Because season two hit the ground running, it feels unlikely Burnham Tilley would have posed for this picture while Burnham was so super stressed out about finding Spock or after Burnham discovered her mother was the Red Angel. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Tilly recalls that more when she and uh, Michael Burnham first met. They were forced to share a room until he says they were scared to bunk with the famous mutineer. This represents the third episode of Star Trek Discovery season one context is for kings in which Burnham joins a crew of Discovery following her mutiny on the USS Shenzhou in the Battle of the Binary Stars. Yeah, she hasn't done anything mutinous lately. Well, kind of here and there. I'm sure she will. Oh, it's it's definitely coming, Steve. Oh, yeah. She's going to cross Rillac. Oh, yeah. Oh, I trust you. Yeah, sure you do. Tilly mentions that Zora could create a hologram of her for Burnham. Yeah, Zora, as we all know by now, is an ascension computer that runs USS uh, Discovery. Yeah, we need more Zora. Although Zora has not totally emerged. She's uh, hadn't totally emerged in season two. By the end of season three, Zora had put her consciousness into the dot bots, which first revealed themselves to Tilly while she was in command. In this episode, there is a tide. I don't know why we're not seeing more Zora stuff that would solve some of these problems they make on their own. Sure. Several times in the episode, we see Tilly's snow globe, which the words, is the word it's all as possible. And Darius gifted this at the end of the episode, but the starship inside the globe seems to be an NX-01 class, meaning it's the same class as the first Enterprise from Star Trek Enterprise. Although discovery now takes place in the 32nd century, well beyond the canon of the rest of the show, it didn't start out that way. In seasons one and two, Disco took place in the 2250s, before the original Star Trek and after, but after Enterprise. That's Tilly's original timeline, and of all the other shows, the Disco is the one closest to Enterprise, at least chronologically. In other words, Tilly having nostalgia for NX01 makes perfect sense. Still dealing with her mother issues, too, because that was only last year. Yes, <laughs> yes it was. Even though it's 900 years in the past. Still last year. So maybe I should give Tilly a break, but I don't know. And watching the ready room after this episode,
2: not only do we get to see Will Wheaton break down... But it sounds like Tilly will be back. So this may be just a temporary like with Saru, where she may be gone for a few episodes and then decides she doesn't want to be a teacher and wants to get back out Uh, on Discovery.
1: Yes, I want the captain's chair. What? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's gone. They'll have a hologram of her walking around. (laughs) Right. She'll come back and like, yeah, we don't miss you. Why not? Because, look, this one doesn't even wring her hands all the time either. Oh, man. Uh,
2: More than likely, the DMA will take out another planet that has some tie to Tilly, which will say, nope, or Stamets will break down, and then Tilly will have to take over his investigation, something like that. Something like that. Yep. (laughs) Well, we have some feedback on this week's episode from our friend Fred from the Netherlands. Let's hear what he thought about this
0: episode. Hello Steve and Dave and all listeners to The Fangirl Zone. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for our Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 4. I'm getting a little in trouble with my feedback because now also The Expand Season 6 started. Listening to podcasts is something I do on my cycle to and from work as everybody knows by now. And not much in the house or around the house or whatever. And since of COVID, I'm partly at home, so I really lack time of listening to podcasts. And I find it very difficult to just give feedback and not listen to the podcast, or just skip through it. So there is one Discovery podcast that uh, has a podcast of two and a half, sometimes three hours, and I just can't listen to it. It's just too long. I already have difficulty enough to cope with the other ones of 45 minutes to one hour. So, in that way, COVID limits me to the amount of podcasts I listen to, instead of uh, increasing it as you could expect. So, when you're sitting at home, you can listen to podcasts. But when I'm home, I'm doing other things, of which one is watching series. Okay, really enough about all my listening and watching habits. Let's go into episode 4 of Discovery. Okay, let's start with the training mission of Tilly, Idira, and the other three. I really had a bit a Kobayashi Maru feeling and all the time I had the idea, is this a simulation, is it not a simulation? But eventually it was obviously not. I found the pace in that a little bit too quick in the sense of things evolved very quickly after each other and that's just because there was no time enough and there were other stories going along as well. For instance, book with Dr. Kalber. And of course, the whole Navarre story with Michael and Saru and both presidents, etc. I think uh, Tilly's story would have gained something if there would be more time for it, a little bit more stretched. And it would feel a little bit more real in the sense of that these cadets first are at each other's throats and then they find common ground and, well, just resolved too quickly. Quite some creatures, by the way, at the end. Even with five phasers, you cannot uh, kill them. I didn't like the acting of David Cronenberg, who played the Starfleet Academy consultant Kovic. It it looked a bit like he had Parkinson's disease. It was so stiff and no, no, not really good acting or he should be like that because he is an artificial intelligence or something. I do like the new Grey really nice, joyful, positive, not so much depressed as previously. So nice change. I really wonder which role he will play because he's now Adira's roommate and that's about it. So will he get a more prominent role? Last episode I was expecting that the Symbiont would be transferred from Adira to Grey. But now in this episode it seems that the Symbiont is still in Adira and only the consciousness of Grey is in the android. Ah, Very strange actually. Because I still wonder if Grey's consciousness, if that's possible at all, well obviously it is, is copied somehow to the android. But the big question is, is it copied or is it transferred? It seems like that Grey is gone from the symbiont in Adira. Gray is not also in Adira, I have the impression. So, you could imagine that if they make androids of all the tall hosts, so all the tall hosts that are still in Adira's symbiont, then you could revive all these tall people, and then the symbiont that is left in Adira would be an empty symbiont. Uh, really? Or is that then Adira tall? I think she only was harboring the symbiont and not really connected to the symbiont as a regular trill. I think with this model there are quite some inconsistencies. Transferring the whole symbiont would have been more logic. I find it very strange that the symbiont is not transferred, but perhaps it has a purpose which we will encounter later in this season. On my first watch I didn't pick it up that the symbiont was still in Idera. So somebody else had to point it out to me. And a extenuating circumstance in my case was that I was watching it with my wife and she started to get sick and throw up. That was by the way not Because of watching Star Trek Discovery And getting disgusted by it But that was some pumpkin soup That obviously was gone bad And the funny thing is that Exactly in the same scene That our setting where Grey is talking about The symbiont in Adira Adira also says something about soup I walk in, say hello Now I know someone Easy You'll do the same with the cadets I'm sorry, have you met me?
1: I can't have soup without scanning it first.
0: (laughs) Well, soup without scanning it first. Perhaps my wife should have scanned her soup as well. And then the story about the Navarre becoming a member of the Federation was also a nice story, but had a little bit the same problem as the Tilly story in the sense of not having time enough and being resolved too quickly. And of course, by the lead actress or the lead figure, Michael Burnham, I would have liked it more when the solution would have come from Saru, although he played his part and I really liked the connection between him and the Navarre president. On the other hand, Michael's experience with Falcons being brought up on Falcon and being a captain of the Federation is also actually logical. This was all. Greetings. Till next time, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, as always,
1: we really appreciate your feedback, Fred. I thought it was funny that he thought David Cronenberg's acting was bad. What do you want him to do? That's who he is. Yes, it really is. He is not an actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what he expects from. him. Uh, blow a little, watch uh, smoke out his ears, or to do the old uh, bow tie <laughs> twirl or something. Right. Stick out his tongue. Yeah, he's not not much going to change there either. I can't believe he listens to a three-hour podcast. Yeah,
2: there is wow. a Star Trek podcast that because three me, hours, two, three hours? oh god, two and a half and max three, three and a half.
1: Wow, yeah, it. I would get tired listening to that. No offense, yes, to those that, people, it's but tough. <laughs> I think we should do a mini
2: great job, but they just have so much feedback
1: and it just goes on and on and on, uh, and, on and on. So, how long was the old Fringe podcast? think that went for more than an hour, right? Yeah, actually, it did. It
2: went for like an hour and a half, and yeah, it finally. There, towards the end,
1: decided to split the uh, feedback out. Right, right. Episode right. special. Yeah. Maybe we should do a mini podcast for five minutes just for Fred. There's <laughs> <laughs> Fred's mini podcast. You know what? He's right about the uh, plots being too crowded. Yeah, And not, not seeing everything resolved. That is a problem. Yes.
2: The previous episode, the stories kind of intertwined and it didn't feel too much. Yeah. This one... The Navarre could have been its own standalone episode all yep. by itself. Yeah. Attila's What's... episode could have been an episode by itself, and those Correct. would have
1: been able to be great episodes. You're, you are exactly right. Yeah. And usually in a season, maybe it's because it's not like 20 episodes like go standard TV used to be, right. that they have to jam these plotlines or they feel as though they have to jam these plotlines in there. But it, Attila's departure just didn't land the way it should have. No i didn't think it did either (laughs) Hmm.
2: well as always fred we appreciate your feedback and looking forward to hearing from you again well we'd love to hear your thoughts on each and every episode this season our deadline for feedback is 10 p.m eastern every friday during the season you can send your feedback be it email or audio to contact us at fangirlzone.com Yep, go
1: to www.fangirlzone.com and click on the contact link where you'll find several ways to contact us via email, through social media. On Twitter, he's at Solar Steve and I'm at the Real ID Dave.
2: Please review and rate us on iTunes and every other podcast platform you listen to us on. As good ratings and reviews help other fans of the show find us, as there are a lot of Star Trek Discovery podcasts out there. Tell your friends and hope you like our
1: podcast. And don't forget to check out the other great Fangirl Zone podcast. The fifth episode is on December 16th and is titled Multiple Question Marks. <laughs> so so until then, remember,
2: this is Chief Engineer Steve. I will be the bridge between you until
1: you no longer need it. And this is Richard Dave, and I get a bridge to sell you if all this melodrama continues.